That's how we're going to solve climate change. Given the time that we have, given the fact that we have one decade, not four or six or eight, uh, individual action can't make the math work in time. We're going to need systemic, political, and economic change, which means in turn that the most important thing an individual can do is be somewhat less of an individual, join together with others in movements large enough to make those changes on a more fundamental level. Uh, you know, I've tried occasionally to explain this to people by saying it's important to screw in a new light bulb, but it's way more important to screw in a new senator, a new uh, piece of legislation. I mean, I mean, these are the battles that, that we're fighting, and it's why we set up 350.org, which was the first iteration of a kind of global climate movement. Today, I got to interview one of my heroes, Bill McKibben. He is a professor at Middlebury College. He wrote The End of Nature back in the late 1980s in his 20s. And then most recently, he has written the book Falter, which is actually about the end of civilization and what we might do about it. He is also the founder of 350.org, which is, which is a global organization dedicated to divestiture or the you know, uninvesting from fossil fuel industries and really taking a stand for community-based grassroots activism around environmental sustainability. So we cover a ton of topics ranging from the arc of his career to the current state of things. Uh, everything from Greta Thunberg to the, the notion of the fossil fuel industries and where they were in the 1980s via now how he was mistaken about most of his career. He thought this was a lack of information. He thought that this was a dialogue, a debate, a discussion. And in fact, he thought it actually turns out to be a more entrenched challenge than that. And as much as anything else, just bearing witness to a dedicated public-intellectual teacher, activist, um, and even even athlete. The idea we talked about his endurance running, his cross-country skiing, his pursuit of flow states, and how, that, how those activities have helped ground him and have helped make him more able to fight the good fight for the long term. So if you haven't come across Bill McKibben, uh, this is a great opportunity to jump into his world a little bit. And if you have before and you have some curiosity, appreciation, respect for the fellow, this is a fun, unguarded, uh, ranging conversation with one of the guiding lights of the modern environmental movement. Bill, it's, a, it's an honor to have you and thank you for joining us on Homegrown Humans. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for asking me. Fantastic. Well, I mean, um, one of the things in, in getting to review just your, you know, your significant body of work and, and something that I appreciate so much about it is how thoughtful and multi-pronged it's been. You know, it's one thing to be an egghead in an ivory tower, telling everybody the way things ought to be in an ideal or perfected world. And then it's another thing to come down out of the tower and say, actually, things need to happen here on the ground. And then another thing, again, to have the kind of cultural savvy that you have shown, along with many of the other leaders of 350.org, and actually rallying and mobilizing grassroots activities uh, and, and demonstrations and, and movements that ricochet around the world. I think there was one um, about a decade ago that might have you know, broken the records for the largest scale mass demonstration you know, at, in, at any given, in, in any one day. Um, so I'd love to just kind of hear what has that been like for you as far as bridging so many of those worlds? Ha, has that been just simply a natural and inevitable part of how you've seen life and your, and your part in it? Or have there been times where you thought, okay, um, I actually am called. I, I can't not expand my sphere of concern. I can't not just sort of step outside my particular lane to address this more comprehensively. Well, I very much began my work as a writer, and that's still how I think of myself primarily. Um, you know, when I wrote the first book about climate change, a, a book called The End of Nature back in 1989, so a long time ago. <laughs> um, and when I began, I think I was thought this is a great story that needs to be told of kind of journalistic um, um, impulse. But I wasn't, but halfway through it, when it became clear to me that I wasn't objective in the sense that I, I, you know, I knew very well I didn't want the planet to burn up, mm -hmm. and 
So in that sense, I suppose um, my work became um, um, changed, shifted some, even then when I was 27 or 28. Um, but it still took me a long time, and I kind of kick myself for the number of years it took for me to realize that I should be doing more than writing books. Um, I thought, and I think most people thought in the 1990s, that we were engaged in an argument and that as we piled up more information and data and reason and so on, uh, that eventually our leaders would do the obvious thing and try to head off what would be the worst thing that ever happened on the planet. It took me a while, too long, to understand that I was uh, operating under a misimpression. Um, by the mid-1990s at the latest, the argument was over. The scientific consensus was clear and robust. The argument was over, but that wasn't resulting in change. Uh, it turned out we hadn't really been engaged in an argument. We'd been engaged in a fight. And the fight wasn't about data and reason. The fight was about what fights are always about, money and power. And so that's when my work shifted again to include much more kind of direct advocacy. I, I figured that we needed to figure out how to build some power of our own. And that's what we got to work with by starting 350.org. Well, and, and, it, and it's fascinating to me. I mean, this is one of the infinite ironies um, is that, and then most recently with that Michael Moore documentary, you then end up getting tarred with the brush of being the fat green cats with the power. Yeah, I mean, that was simply wrong. Um, sure. Um, so there's no, uh, you know, in the end, no particular way to uh, respond to it other than to say, uh, you know, we've spent uh, decades standing up to uh, the fossil fuel industry. We've built this massive divestment movement that's at $15 trillion now in endowments and portfolios divested from fossil fuel. Um, and we've stood up as hard as we know how to the um, banks and asset managers and insurance companies that are funding that movement. I began 2020 going to jail in D.C. after sitting in at the Chase Bank branch nearest the Capitol because Chase Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, is the biggest lender to the fossil fuel industry, about a quarter trillion dollars since the Paris Climate Accords. Hmm. And so, you know, we were calling attention to that. And sometimes those things work and sometimes they work with some speed, uh, you know, in the autumn of 2020. Chase Bank announced that they were going to be Paris aligned in their lending policies. We don't know yet precisely what that means, and it wouldn't surprise me if more people have to go spend some time in jail to make them clarify it and live up to it and things. But uh, it's a reminder that you actually can stand up to very large forces sometimes. Certainly the fossil fuel industry is not what it was a decade ago when we began. Mm -hmm. um, at and that didn't, point, didn't you write that, that Oxford University has recently divested from fossil fuels Oxford, as well? Both Oxford and Cambridge have divested. The Pope has called for divestment. The Queen of England began divesting this summer. The Republic of Ireland has divested all its public accounts. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is the biggest pool of investment capital on the planet, uh, the city of New York's pension fund, the University of California system, its $90 billion endowment and pension fund, on and on and on and on. It's a very long uh, uh, and wonderful list. And what it means is that in thousands of places around the world, I mean, it's not like I did this, people took up this fight and made it local and made it effective. We did our best to help everywhere we could. But that was kind of the, um, the best thing about it. Uh, you know, not everybody has a coal mine in their backyard. Not everybody has a um, pipeline that's going to go through their neighborhood. But everybody has proximity to some pot of money, a pension fund, a university endowment, a church fund, 
um, so on and so forth. And so in all those places, people have spent the last decade uh, making this fight and making it really powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember you doing some, you know, some very, very nice, you know, journalistic writing, kind of the back of the envelope calculations as to, hey, what tar sands, what oil deposits and reserves are still here, you know, basically the, the leave it in the ground movement yes. or call to action. I, I just think that's such a, that was such a, a, a novel and straightforward way of communicating where we are in the carbon game. Can you, can you just unpack that for a little bit and how did that come to be and, and, and what sort of legs has it found? Very indebted to a group in London called Carbon Tracker Initiative, a little uh, consultancy in London that in 2012 published a small report and they did a good job of doing something that people should have done long ago. Um, they simply added up all the carbon that the big oil companies and things had in their reserves, the stuff they told banks and shareholders they were going to dig up and burn. And they compared that number with the amount of carbon scientists said we could burn and have any hope of staying on a working planet. And what do you know, there turned out to be five times as much in the former category as the latter. That is to say, uh, if the business plans of these fossil fuel enterprises were carried out, there was no drama about what the ending of this story was going to be. Um, Once we had that data, it sort of changed the way that we thought about those companies. I remember sitting with my dear friend, Naomi Klein, uh, who had also read this report, and and we said it reminded, we, as we talked with each other, it reminded us of the way that some big corporations and banks had become kind of rogue villain actors during the um, last years of apartheid in South Africa and how there'd been a massive divestment movement then very effective. And so we thought perhaps that the time was ripe to do something similar around big oil. We didn't anticipate when we started that it would grow as big as it has grown. It's clearly now the largest anti-corporate campaign of its kind that there's ever been. Um, But we knew that it was necessary. And, you know, the oil companies are not what they were. Uh, Instead of being the biggest companies on earth, Exxon's not even the biggest energy company anymore. Its market cap is now smaller than NextEra Energy, which is a solar and wind company based in Florida. So we've made made progress side by side with the great work done by engineers. They've dropped the price of solar and wind 90% in the last decade. And at the same time, we've been assailing the fossil fuel industry from the other side. Uh, um, you know, attacking their ability to expand, to build pipelines, to find capital. And caught in this pincers movement, the fossil fuel industry is in real trouble now. Yeah, that's, that's not, now, I want to juxtapose that, because on the one hand, what you've just shared feels like a very powerful and important story of grassroots mobilization, citizenship participation, you know, us having a voice and, and, and all of us together being able to make a difference. And then on the other hand, you know, I, I've heard you, you know, muse out loud in your writings and those kind of things of the incredible stacked deck. You even just, you know, even where you, you, you would sort of mea culpa yourself, you say, I thought we were in a, basically a meritocratic conversation. I thought this was about the best ideas and the right and the right data winning. But in fact, there were meaningful thumbs on the scales here and that we're not in a dialogue. We're not in a conversation. We're in a war. And given the extreme factionalization in the democratic West and in particular in the United States, that notion of wartime footing where I no longer extend to the other the same rights and dignities, the same due process. You know, the idea is just take out the enemy at all costs. We, they have, we have become dehumanized to each other. How, you know, and on the other hand, if you, you know, the, the, the evidence is suggesting that the hour is increasingly late on the environmental front. How do we balance maintaining or repairing some form of civil discourse in a place that's it's fraying at the seams on a lot of stupid places as well, let alone the absolute mission critical ones, and yet also acknowledge the urgency of what I'm hearing you say is in fact a wartime footing. How do we how do we pass this? Well one one easy way to parse it is to is to 
take out the phrase at all costs, um, you know, people have been exceedingly wise about understanding the importance of nonviolence um, as the foundation of movement building. I've written that the two great technologies of the 20th century were the solar panel and the nonviolent mass movement. Um, that technology that comes to us from the margins, from the suffragists, from Gandhi, from Dr. King, from a million others whose names we don't know, is a tool for the small and many to stand up to the mighty and the few. And, and so those are the kind of movements we build. They're not, uh, um, they're not violent in any way. Um, and I think that the, the hard variable here is the one that you describe, which is time. Um, most movements count on the fact that eventually they will win. As Dr. King often said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Sadly, the arc of the physical universe is fairly short and appears to bend toward heat. Um, we're seeing in real time an extraordinary change in the living planet that we inhabit. We have, compared with 30 years ago, half as much sea ice in the Arctic. We have a dramatically altered ocean chemistry. We may have lost something like half our coral reefs. We've seen uh, tremendous changes in the way that water moves around the planet. We get much more evaporation and hence drought in arid areas, and with it, obviously, colossal fire. Once that water is up in the air, it comes down, and we get, in wet areas, vastly increased flood and deluge. Um, all those things have happened with a one degree Celsius increase in the temperature. We're on track to increase it three or four degrees Celsius unless we get our act together very, very fast. And that very, very fast is, you know, the hard part. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's climate scientists, said in 2018 that if we hadn't fundamentally transformed our energy system by 2030, and they defined that as cutting emissions in half, then we had no chance of reaching those climate targets we set in Paris. So uh, the, what I'm saying is, unlike other political issues, this one comes with a time limit. Physics and chemistry are setting the boundaries here, and that influences the possible choice of strategies and policies and whatever. Uh, you know, winning slowly on climate is just another way of losing. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, in that description, so let's say, you know, the hour is late and the stakes are mortal. And what do we do now? And that, in many respects, is the the, the central inquiry of this podcast series, Homegrown Humans, is, is where have we come from? You know, who are we? And what do we do now? And so, go ahead. So one of the important things to realize that that, you know, is that you really do get very different strategies depending on how much time you have. So let's say two things there. The first is to realize that, that the fossil fuel industry wasted 30 years of our time. We now know from great investigative reporting that companies like Exxon knew everything there was to know about climate change back in the 1980s. Their predictions for what the temperature would be and the CO2 concentration in 2020 were spot on. And they began doing things like building their drilling rigs higher to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was on the way. But they didn't tell the rest of us. Instead, the whole industry invested huge sums of money in building a kind of architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us locked in a completely sterile and pointless debate about whether or not global warming was real. A debate that both sides knew the answer to 30 years ago, just one of them was willing to lie. And that lie cost us 30 years. And as the climate scientists point out, it means we have to cram the work of four decades into one decade, and that's going to be very difficult. And what that means in terms of choices is we have far fewer. Um, you know, one of the first impulses when faced with a problem like this is to think about what individual actions we can take. 
how might we change our diet or our home or our mobility or whatever it is? Those are good questions to ask. You know, I, we're talking today from my house, which is covered with solar panels, and that's how I'm able to speak back and forth with you. Um, I'm proud of that, but I don't waste my time congratulating myself because I don't think that's how we're going to solve climate change. Given the time that we have, given the fact that we have one decade, not four or six or eight, uh, individual action can't make the math work in time. We're going to need systemic, political, and economic change, which means in turn that the most important thing an individual can do is be somewhat less of an individual, join together with others in movements large enough to make those changes on a more fundamental level. Uh, you know, I've tried occasionally to explain this to people by saying it's important to screw in a new light bulb, but it's way more important to screw in a new senator, a new uh, piece of legislation. A new, I mean, these are the battles that, that we're fighting, and it's why we set up 350.org, which was the first iteration of a kind of global climate movement, and why we've been so incredibly delighted to see the rise of Extinction Rebellion, of the Sunrise Movement, with the Green New Deal, of the high school and junior high school students and the climate strikers from Fridays for the Future. Uh, you know, everybody knows and everybody should know Greta Thunberg. She's one of the great activists the world's ever seen and one of my favorite people. But there's 10,000 Greta Thunbergs, you know, all over the world and 10 million followers of them. And that's the really good news. Yeah. So, so I mean, as, as you're describing that, um, I mean, something that I hadn't seen in a broad scale critique until this year with COVID, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing in the Financial Times, you're seeing the Economist, you're starting to see it in places that are the bastions of neoliberalism actually questioning the neoliberal orders, questioning late stage capitalism, or as, as your friend Naomi Klein would call it, disaster capitalism, the idea that there's even more to be made as this thing goes off the cliff. Um, and what is your sense? I mean, obviously, um, I live here in Austin, Texas, have spent some time with John Mackey and was kind of around for the beginnings of the conscious capitalism movement with your neighbors, Ben and Jerry and the Body Shop and lots of, lots of those kind of organizations. And I think that in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been that sort of sense of, hey, we can do well by doing good, that there are these opportunities within the markets uh, to make, to, yeah, to render capitalism more conscious. And then on the other hand, you know, there are just these, you know, whether it's governance and fiduciary responsibility, whether it's the accumulation of tort law, where, you know, whether it's quarterly reporting and stock drivers, there are certain inexorable drivers baked into this system. And, you know, and again, I mean, John Mackey experienced this with Whole Foods, right? He had a, he had a minority stake in uh, private equity group, you know, had 8% of Whole Foods, and they were able to basically get them over a barrel on a potential hostile takeover, and they had to run into the arms of Jeff Bezos, you know, just to just to save the company. And you're like, oh, okay, so even some of the most iconoclastic, dug-in, principled folks making positive impact, if they get, if they get, do they just get all crushed in the maw of the machinery of capitalism. So I guess a question I have, and you're, and you're dealing with this with the divestiture movement, is is our existing system, does it have the Buckminster Fuller trim tabs? Is this thing steerable or is it fatally flawed because of the tragedy of the commons and the other things that are baked into its physics? I don't know. It's very clear that capitalism is the way we're practicing it at the moment doesn't work. Um, I mean, you can tell because the temperature of the planet's gone up by a degree and half the Arctic's melted. So clearly the idea that you can basically just let the system alone to do what it wants to and it will all work out for everybody is nonsense. Um, that kind of laissez-faire capitalism clearly makes no sense and it needs to be brought under tight control, real regulation. Um, you know, uh, my my uh, local hero and old friend Bernie Sanders, who I've worked hard to transport, um, keeps reminding us that there are countries on Earth that aren't like that, and he usually points to the Scandinavian countries um, as a result. And I mean, I guess they're capitalist in the sense that we think about it. I mean. When you go there, you 
give people money and they give you stuff back, you know. Um, they have companies and those companies sell stock and whatever. But they're clearly not like our version of capitalism. Um, you know, they're, they're heavily regulated and they exist in a framework that's more about serving the public good than about making people like John Mackey or Jeff Bezos or anybody else rich, you know. Um, I mean, you know, all these guys get in the, I mean, I mean, as I recall, John Mackey was working against uh, healthcare, you know, for, for, you know, for, you know, government, you know, healthcare, as they have in a place like Scandinavia. Uh, um, you know, I, I, have, I have very little interest in a world that's about, you know, letting guys, you know, encouraging them to, you know, become vastly rich, whatever it is they're doing, selling you, you know, uh, high-priced organic vegetables or delivering stuff overnight to your door or whatever. Um, um, I'm My work is about trying to bring the most egregious uh, uh, players in this under some kind of control. And given that the fossil fuel industry is doing more damage than any other industry on the planet. That's where I've concentrated my work over the years. So, so as you describe this, when, you, when we're talking about, you know, not a dialogue, but, but a potential war, right, for the things that matter most about the survivability and sustainability uh, of, of this planet, and then potentially wild and pristine natural places as a natural kind of outgrowth. And I actually just, just came back from guiding courses uh, for a couple of weeks in the Bears Ears and Escalante canyons mm. of utah so right there in the heart of the current public land battles and we actually spent a fair amount of time reading a lot of gary snyder poems uh, and even some at abbey from monkey ranch gang and desert solitaire and those kinds of things i know uh, both of those guys and wendell berry is it what's it called for for the poets no what is his the, the poem golly mad farmer's manifesto yes right <laughs> which is just prescient um, yes Wendell, Wendell and Gary and Ed Abbey are great heroes of mine. And if you were there in Bears Ears Escalante, one of the reasons you were there is because Terry Tempest Williams, uh, their friend and mine, worked so hard to make it real, along with tons of other people, especially indigenous activists across that part of the world. Um, there's a huge countercultural force. Uh, uh, the nature writers are a great part of that, so are people in frontline communities who've really dealt with the effects of abuse of capitalism, so are indigenous communities around the world. These people are all at the forefront of the fight for climate justice and at the kind of broader fight for, for a, uh, a planet that, that works for us. Um, it's obviously not an easy fight because it's you know a bunch of you know, writers and Navajo and, you know, poor people and so on up against the richest, most powerful corporations in the world. Happily, there's a lot more of us uh, in numbers than there are of them. Their weapons money. Ours is creativity and spirit and passion and the willingness occasionally to spend our bodies and go to jail. Yeah, and I'm kind of, as you're describing this, I'm sort of almost kind of seeing a spectrum, right? A continuation. And you talked about Extinction Rebellion, you know, and the Sunrise Movement and some others. I'm imagining that um, Deep Adaptation and Jem Bendel's work is on your radar as well. So, so on the one hand, you have folks that might take everything you've written absolutely to heart and say, we're stuffed. There's actually no pulling out of this nosedive. Therefore, this is effectively a hospice movement for humanity. And that's the Deep Adaptation folks, right? They're saying there's no point flailing or struggling this aircraft carrier you know whatever the titanic's hitting the iceberg pick your metaphor so let's make peace with it and let's become as alive and engaged as we can without any false hopes of being able to turn this on a dime you know and then you have maybe and this is you know this is an arbitrary uh, spectrum but then you know then i'm imagining that there's the folks who take the ed abbey monkey retro and say actually the, and, and, and in fact I, I wanted to ask you about this because uh is it powers uh recent book, Overstory, uh, that won the Pulitzer. And I think I remember seeing you blurbing 
And that was actually part of why I read it. And I was like, oh, well, if Bill thinks this is an optimistic book, I'm going to plug through it, right? <laughs> and hopefully I'll get a hit of some of that optimism. But in, in, in that story, they have, they, they're ex- there's that exact quandary for some of the main characters. And they decide, in fact, that, that that old growth, which will take half a day to cut down and took you know 2,000 years to grow, has to be protected. And that, and that the asymmetry of value versus destruction justifies some monkey wrenching you know and then you have maybe your civil disobedience divestiture that's kind of within civil society you're kind of working within it and you're optimizing you're basically agreeing to play nicely and by the rules you know where where do you see how how, how do how do we avoid i think all these things are very useful but i don't think the kind of play nicely by the rules is actually quite right it's probably I mean, work around things like divestiture probably represents the biggest threat at the moment to the way business as usual is conducted. Um, so I think it's really important. Um, um, but I think that, you know, as always, one's response to what to do at any given moment is more or less rooted in, in uh, physical reality. Um, you know, we're still at a moment when we have significant leverage over how high the temperature is going to get. We're obviously going to be dealing with climate change, global warming, uh, the greenhouse effect, and it's obviously going to be painful and difficult. It's obviously going to be the biggest thing human beings have ever done. But there's a world of difference between what a two-degree world would look like and what a four-degree world would look like. And that outcome still seems to be within our ability to affect. So one way of looking at this is to say, we obviously have no choice but to adapt to that which we can't prevent. Um, That's clear. Millions of people are already having to adapt to a world in which their neighborhood catches on fire every summer or where the sea level has already begun to rise or or whatever. But equally, we have to make sure that we don't create, we have to make sure that we prevent a world to which there is no adaptation. If we get up to, you know, a world that's three or four degrees warmer, then we will not have civilizations that in any way resemble what we used to, what we're used to, and we may not be able to really survive in organized form, you know. Um, So there's a world of work to be done in the short period of time where that leverage remains. And the question is how to make it most effective, how to hit hardest at the the forces that are causing trouble. So that's that's how I choose what I'm doing on any given day. Yeah, well, and so um, some of my background is in kind of like mountain guiding and that kind of stuff. And one of the risk parameters that we would always use is, is there's the objective hazards, literally what's out there in the mountains, rockfall, you know, drought, you know, or, you know, avalanche, et cetera. But there's also the subjective hazard. And what is the strength and continuity of the team? So if you had two guys that have just come off knocking down a bunch of peaks and they land at Mount Everest and they're ready to go and the weather's good, you're like, that, they have a good chance of success. If, on the other hand, you have a group of 20 and they're bickering and there's no orientation, like you have to downgrade the yep. likelihood of pulling off the high, hard thing because of the combination of the objective and the subject. And if we just took the last three years or even the last nine months, just 2020 with global COVID, what has been our dress rehearsal? To rally together as a as a as a global community around an existential threat, arguably a very manageable one, you know, but quite discreet, um, and how you know to to put it in technical terms, we have thoroughly shat the bed. You know, my question there is, how does that inform? And again, with dwindling, you know, dwindling timelines, increasing consequences, and and spiking subjective risk, meaning our inability to actually row together hard. Yeah. Um, how do how do we navigate that? COVID's been very interesting. It's obviously been the largest disruption to life in our lifetimes. I think you'd have to go back to World War II to have a kind of disruption in daily life on anything like the same scale. And a lot of interesting things resulted. One is that though emissions fell they of carbon dioxide they fell less than you might have suspected eight or nine percent at the peak 
which is a reminder that there are limits to individual action here. Most of this destruction is hardwired into our system and needs to be ripped out, you know, and, and so that's just a good reminder. But I think COVID's probably teaching us uh, in the long run a few lessons. I hope it is. Um, who knows? I mean, it, it may just be teaching us that we're just, as a species, not very good at this at this point, and that, you know, given a kind of a national version of the marshmallow test, uh, Americans at least failed spectacularly. Um, other countries did much better. But uh, here are the things one should take away from it. One, physical reality is real. Uh, it doesn't matter if the president tells us that COVID's a hoax. It doesn't care. It's setting the terms. If it says wear a mask and stand six feet apart, then do it. Second is a reminder that speed counts. Countries that got on the job of flattening the COVID curve early did fine. Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand, you know. Um, countries that wasted time and refused to face reality, like the U.S., are obviously in a world of hurt. And that's, you know, for February and March in COVID time, substitute the last 30 years in climate time, same, um, you know, ridiculous refusal to heed scientific warning. Third thing, most important, it's a deep reminder that solidarity really counts. Um, you know, um, we've been, spend our lives, many of us living in the kind of philosophical shadow of Ronald Reagan, uh, who tried to teach us that markets solved all problems, that government was the problem, not the solution. Reagan's famous laugh line was always the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, you know. Ha uh, uh, ha. But that's not, I mean, the scariest sentences in the language are obviously, we've run out of ventilators or the hillside behind your house just caught on fire. And you can't do anything about those with, you know, a market solution. What you need are people working together, uh, you know, with a government that we've decided to give useful resources to, that's competent, that takes care of, you know, that we work. Government's just our way of saying working together, you know. And, and so hopefully those are some of the lessons that will emerge in time from this. But maybe not. Maybe the lesson we'll just take is every man for himself. And if we do that, then we're then we're in then we're screwed on a number of counts going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to actually kind of circle back on on a couple of threads we we've touched on already. Um, and the first is just the obvious. Um, what did you find inspiring about the book Overstory? Because in it, right, there's definitely there's one of the characters that is. I think he's a Vietnam vet and he dedicates his life to planting trees. And then he realizes that there's just those highway curtains that they leave, you know, a few hundred yard buffers of uncut trees, but beside them are just clear cuts and, you know, and, I, and spending a lot of our summers climbing and windsurfing and things in the Pacific Northwest. I remember, you know, just mountain biking into these just wastelands of rubble and, and how dispiriting he found that in the story. And even just the monocrop replanting versus a fully biodiverse forest, and particularly in the last couple of years, I think in particular, have been some of these, I think, well-intentioned, sincere movements of like, if we can plant a trillion trees, people, right, we can do this kind of stuff. So um, in some respects, I found that book as, as you know, bare knuckles and truth-telling as, as it could possibly be, including even the, you know, the sort of heroic futility of, of Earth-first type monkey wrenching and, 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 and all of these things. What for you was the optimism? What did you? Where did you find and see hope in that story? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I love the book in part because he's a beautiful writer. Yeah, yeah, uh, so magnificently written. But I think it was also important because I think it's the first piece of literature that manages to effectively take trees and make them characters um, to. Uh, give them full uh, life. Um, you know, I've lived my life surrounded by trees and I love them. Um, they're, you know, maybe the most obvious life form on our planet if you just were landing here from someplace else, you know. Um, um, and 
And so, if for nothing else, I think uh, Richard Powers did a fantastic job of kind of understanding that on a new and powerful level. Uh, I think it's one of the great books of our time. Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, there were phrases. There's one I think he just, and they're, they're just phrases in the offing, like not even necessarily his punchlines. But there was one, it was like they were as close, and it might have been the, the, the man and the woman who spent the time in the tree stand. And he said something along the lines of them being as close as two people can be without, without destroying each other. You know, just sort of just like stop you in your tracks where you're like, where on earth did that come from? Uh, and it was just, you know, straight out of his pen. Um, What's your sense? I mean, I, I want to go back because this is what I wrestle with and I have since I was, you know, young, idealistic and passionate. But at what point, and this has even been showing up in the George Floyd protests and some of the urban social justice as well, which is, you know, you spoke a little about, about the Nordics form of capitalism, the peculiarities of the United States. And I think we could kind of fill in the blanks of sort of a rugged individualistic um, hyper-libertarianism is kind of you know, a, a definite thread there. Um, at what point, if ever, is it okay to spike trees and put sugar in the gas tanks of the bulldozers and actually take a stand against the mechanized destruction of the commons? Or do you say that way never, um, and, and you take that, you double down on that stand for the nonviolence and the peaceful protest. Oh, how do you how do you make sense? I mean, I don't think at this point it's a you know, I mean it's a literary question, not a uh, um, uh, practical one. Um, you know, Ed Abbey, who who gave us Earth First, you know, the Monkey Ranch Gang, and who I knew and 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 well, who I really love, um, uh, you know didn't envision saving the world through pouring sand in the gas tanks of bulldozers. Um, um, uh, you can't, it's very difficult if you choose the weapons of the other side to win a fight, you know. Uh, taking up arms against the people, the institutions that have all the guns is unlikely to be an effective strategy, I think. Um, that's why uh, that's why other kinds of uprising are so useful and interesting, and why it's been so powerful to watch, for instance, uh, the movement that sprung up um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder this year. Of all the things anybody said in 2020, the most important was what he said as he was being murdered. I, I can't breathe. And people can't breathe because there's a cop kneeling on their neck. I can't breathe because there's a coal-fired power plant down the road. It's always the same communities. You know, can't breathe because COVID is filling up their lungs, and that too follows the same paths of race and class as anything else. They can't breathe because there's too much wildfire smoke in the air, and the authorities have told people to go inside and tape their windows shut. You can't breathe because it's gotten too damn hot. You know, California this year, 130 degrees Fahrenheit one day, the highest temperature ever reliably recorded on our planet. The temperature that will um, cover large swaths of the planet in the summer in the decades to come unless we act very quickly. Um, all those things are a reminder that um, questions around justice are central here. Uh, the iron law of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and the harder you suffer. And that's why the people in those frontline communities and indigenous communities have been at the forefront of this fight. That's why when we poll Americans, Latino Americans and black Americans are far more concerned about climate change than white Americans. Uh, you know, that's why the rest of the world is trying to actually do something about this and, and begin to move. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of um, um, that's the kind of movements we're going to need, and they're going to have to be really big. There's no way for one guy with a bag of sugar uh, to sabotage the you know industrial machine that's currently destroying our planet. 
though it makes for uh, incredibly wonderful uh, novel. Um, um, you know, The Monkey Ranch Gang is one of my favorite books there ever was. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, the sentiment behind it's wasted in any way. Abby was one of the great inspirers of people to uh, build movements like Earth First that have done tremendous good in helping us stand up to exploitation of all kinds. Well, so, so let's, let's play this through. Let's kind of bring this up to the present, right? There's that sense of, um, I mean, I, I know that you were active and engaged with the Dakota Pipeline and those protests and, and, and keeping, doing the level best, to, you know, again, to keep that oil in the ground. And there were some profoundly concerning um, investigative journalistic pieces that were written after that or around and about it. And there were certainly reports from many of the folks that we know that were on the ground with drone surveillance, with Wi-Fi signal jamming, with the inter you know, interruption of journalistic activity, even potentially with the spraying from planes of, of various chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, so definitely... Um, you know, Nixonian dirty tricks uh, at play, and then even some reports of some former private military contractors that had been active in Iraq, then coordinating across five state agencies with state police, with National Guard, with other folks, and writing basically opposition briefings on, you know, and the insurgents that are happen to be U.S. citizens. And and I would imagine you came across this one simply because it's, it's right up in your neck with the woods, but I think there was a young woman from Williams uh, college, maybe uh, it was definitely a, it was one of those New England schools, and she ended up having I, what she claims and what bystanders claim was a flashbang grenade or something you know thrown in her direction that maimed her hand. Um, the her her exit to definitive medical care via ambulance was blocked on the bridge for something like six to eight hours. But then the official report was that she'd been carrying a pipe bomb or a propane canister, and she in fact was a domestic terrorist. Yeah, and. I mean this, I mean, it was a terrible scene there, and the forces of repression were immense, and the courage of people in standing up to them was immense. Uh, and it was a powerful example that when people stand up like that, they're capable of capturing the uh, imagination of the country. The key moment, I, I think, in many ways, well, the, the first key moment was simply that people decided to take a stand, and it was uh, a small number of uh, indigenous women leaders, uh, Donna Allard and others, that, that you know really got things going. Um, but the key moment in the standoff was the day that the um, uh, private security guards hired by the oil companies sicked German shepherds on peaceful protesters. And the pictures of that were enough. Uh, they were so reminiscent, for instance, of the pictures from Birmingham in 1963, say, that, that they awakened the conscience of a nation, and in particular of the Obama White House. And, you know, within a couple of months, the, the Obama had withdrawn the permit for that pipeline. One of the great tragedies of Trump's election was that we lost a battle I think we would otherwise have been able to win, carry out. Uh, uh, it was unbelievably great organizing by Native communities almost entirely. Um, 300 Native communities represented at Standing Rock, which is no easy feat because the politics of Indian country is as you know, diverse and sometimes divisive as any other politics. Um, but people came together in a profound way and, and did the job. And then, you know, as with many other things, the insane election of Donald Trump was enough to overturn immense amounts of good work. Yeah, and something that, that chilled me when it happened, and then I became doubly, triply concerned after reading some of those reports of the kind of the, the private, militarized, state-coordinated responses, was back in 2011, right, Obama also passed that suspension of habeas corpus, the ability for extrajudicial drone strikes on American citizens acting on foreign soil in a terrorist capacity. And as soon as Dakota Pipeline happened, I thought, oh, dear God, like, actually, all you would need is a an aggressive attorney general to interpret, you know, Indian land as foreign lands, which is convenient, coming, we're going, but, you know, technically true, um, and, to, uh, and to tag 
American citizen protesters engaged in eco-terrorism, and you suddenly had a complete suspension of civil liberties. Now, this is not wild conjecture. That's that's. Uh, There's a lot of people I think who'd um, who'd take it. The uh, the designation of uh, Indian land as foreign land. might be regarded by many as a really good step up in the, I mean, people are demanding sovereignty over those lands, understand them not to be uh, uh, under control in the same way that that other parts of the country are of the government in Washington. Um, So, you know, maybe that was, uh, maybe that was one um, good result of everything that went on at Standing Rock. I think it advanced those arguments about sovereignty a good deal um, help people understand why that's an important part of the future well so so that that's my I guess my question is like oh wow those dominoes are teetering like 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 fast forward three years five years six months who knows right where the intensity of environmental protests become more and more pronounced the inevitability of more agitated more um more extreme elements like the, the sort of the bogeyman of antifa meets earth first and has a baby you know what that those activities even if it's asian provocateurs it doesn't really matter it'll be just part of the, the social discourse um yeah. how do we avoid um those forms of designations those forms of tripwires because what i'm hearing you say is the whole idea of it must be nonviolent protest that is our that's one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century I, I think that nonviolent protest is um, more effective. And I think there's now large amounts of academic research to back this up, that it works better. It doesn't always work, and it's not easy, and the forces arrayed against us are always strong. Um, but uh, there is something very powerful in that uh, work. And man, you sure felt it at Standing Rock. I don't know if you were there. Um, it was a place of um, it was a place of prayer above all else. Um, um, that was what was mostly going on there, day and night. Uh, uh, and that was the um, that was the force above all forces that was animating that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you you might have been up. Uh, alluding to Erica Chenoweth's uh, work at Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, right? The idea that three and a half percent of a population is often sufficient to make you know, large-scale societal change, and that nonviolent protest is, is roughly twice as effective as violent protest. That's obviously become one of the you know el- articles of faith for Extinction Rebellion, for Sunrise Movement, for lots of others, and, it, and it's potentially really inspiring. And on the other hand, I, I have also heard, you know, reasoned critiques, which is saying, hey, that may have been true in the 20th century for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, folks were standing in line for a, for the right to sit on the bus, but the bus still had a full tank of gas and an oil, and, oil, and it was going to get to its destination on time. We're more like trying to assemble chitty chitty bang bang as this thing sails off a cliff. So the idea of like the metasystemic collapse being different than simply insisting on a seat at the table. Uh, you know, and, you know, and a right to participate in kind of the neoliberal promise. And then the other is obviously, who was that most effective appealing to was often societies that had high espoused ideals, like America and the civil rights, like Britain, you know, even in its, in its decolonial unwinding, not Nazis and fascists. And if you marched peacefully in the streets of Berlin, you know, Hitler might have just said, thanks very much, we're just going to run you over with panzer tanks. So, so those two things, the idea of metasystemic intersectional collapse being a trickier thing and or the appeal to higher authority, you know, does it only work when at least espouse values align and we're simply calling the powers that be into account to the better angels of their nature versus saying we don't even have the same angels. I suppose, I mean, you, we may find out, I mean, there may be people who, uh, um, uh, you know, who rise up violently and whatever, and we'll find out how well it works. Um, um, it's not, um, it's not going to be me, but but maybe maybe someone. Well, I'd love to I'd love to kind of bring this full circle back to your lived experience, 
um, because mm. it, there's a couple of pieces that really intrigued me. One was you describing Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, and obviously an organization I'm a part of, the Flow Genome Project. We spent a lot of time in that space, um, and how cross-country skiing, distance running was it? You know, you basically said you had to take a break from the pressures of, of saving the world. And, and I think there's that there's that great E.B. White quote, you know, the author of Charlotte's Web, and he said, every morning I wake up torn between the desire to save the world and the desire to savor it. And, yes. then, and, and then I realized, in fact, the savoring has to come first, because if I didn't do that part, there'd be nothing left to save. So, yes. and, I, and, I, and I also tracked that I think you've written, you, you've written about your own Christian Methodist faith and also written about the book of Job, and the sort of this nature of ongoing suffering. So how, how did those two aspects of your life, your embodiment and movement in and through nature, and your relationship to deep abiding spiritual truths, especially I'm imagining in regard to suffering and service, how, how have those kind of percolated through your stand in the world and, and your thinking? Well, it's been important in my life to spend as much time in the out of doors as possible. Partly because it's uh, where I'm most comfortable and at home, and partly because it's a good idea, I think, to um, surround oneself with things that are bigger than one. Um, it's a good, you know, it's hard to uh, be altogether too um, full of yourself if you've been out under the stars or out in the woods or whatever in the course of the day. Um, so I, I find that useful in lots of ways. Um, and I, um, I do find the um, Gospels uh, the most uh, radical and bracing um, uh, stories I know. Um, they're very hard. The idea that one is to love one's neighbor, uh, that, that, that the point of the world is to, um, is to feed the hungry and, you know, clothe the naked and house the homeless and things is, uh, you know, not as, it's not exactly what most of the forces in a, uh, high consumer society are telling us at any given moment. Um, but it's, um, it's a, uh, it's a good, um, well, for me, it's been a good mantra to hold on to. And uh, so I'm, that's, but that's, that's just my lived experience. The good thing is there's people with many, many other lived experiences. And, and we share a planet and lots of us are learning how to work together in these things from lots of different directions. And uh, that's what's made movement really so much fun. It's really good to have... Look, we don't know if we're going to win this fight. But 10 years ago, we didn't know if there was going to be a fight, if we were going to be able to assemble the forces to even make a fight in time to take these guys on. And now we know that. Now we have assembled that force. There is going to be a fight. And that at least is a... Um, that at least is important to me. It would have been really sad to go over this cliff just blindly, uh, not realizing that we were going. Well, and and that, that triggers for me that notion. I mean, and Wendell Berry also, you know, has, has a deeply Christian uh, perspective on his ecological stance. And, and weirdly, right, that notion of, of stewardship, if you go all the way back to Genesis, um, seems to somehow have been decoupled from at least what is the most visible expressions of Christian faith uh, in America today. It's almost as if the sort of sense of like, you know, drive a big ass suburban maybe, roll call you know, and have lots of kids. Um, maybe, but the most, um, really the most, probably the most radical environmentalist on the planet at the moment is the Pope. Uh, Laudato Si, his encyclical from five years ago now, uh, is the most thorough critique of modernity that we have. Uh, truly a powerful document. So, you know, there's lots of different angles to come with all this from. Um, um, and 
that's good. So, so yeah, I guess, I'm, so my final question will be like, let's come full circle back to um, this notion of the nonviolence. You talked about King and Gandhi, uh, and actually just in doing the research for my, my next book, I came across this beautiful vignette about Howard Thurman, right? He was what the sort of mystic civil rights activist who was one of the mentors to King and many. And in mm-hmm. fact, in the mid thirties, he was the first African-American yeah. ambassador to go to India. He's the one that sat with Gandhi and was deeply, deeply moved, and then came back and took Satyagraha, the truth force, and then re-languaged it as soul force. And at least in you know the telling that I had heard, that until that point, nonviolence was a tactic of the civil rights movement. It was, don't piss off the Bull Connors of the world, or we end up with our skulls caved in. So be nonviolent such that we have a chance to keep on doing this. And that Thurman really brought that transmission of it being the central and unwavering spiritual principle, such that by the time King is giving his I have a dream, and we, you know, we, we shall meet physical force and soul force, we shall rise to the majestic heights, that that then became this transformational philosophy. So in this day and age, and this is what I wrestle with, because it takes a gun, it takes a thumb, and it takes a king, it takes some person of rare commitment and integrity to be able to ring that bell so that others can hear, to say, we don't succumb to hate, we don't degrade to pettiness, we don't, you know, we don't go with the knee-jerk of an eye for an eye. And yet, particularly in our contemporary social justice movement, and we saw this in examples in Portland and elsewhere, which is radically antinomian and sometimes aggressively leveling in its tendencies, and, 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 and it has beauty there, the grassroots element, the, contr- the contribution of otherwise silenced or marginalized voices, all essential. And yet there is this sense of, and no one's going to be the boss of us. So how do we reconcile accessing and tapping into soul force, which is arguably a rare and somewhat Christic capacity, with the, the grassroots slash mob? How do we find what is exceptional in all of us uh, without, or maybe we still need to defer to some of us? I mean, I don't know. I don't have any good answer to this. Um, but the big mass movements that I've watched, people have done a great job of working nonviolently to accomplish enormous things, to huh. stop pipelines, to weaken huge corporations, to, you know. Uh, and, and I think there are enormously powerful leaders right now, Reverend William Barber, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg, uh, you know, on and on down a long, long list of people, young and old, on every continent, from every tradition, uh, of every race, who have really done you know, spectacular job of taking these ideas that we first started learning about from Gandhis and Kings and bringing them forward. And my guess is they'll play a huge role in the future, assuming there is one. And uh, you know, the one thing that worries me, as I've said, is that you know the variable that's most daunting and difficult is time, and dealing with that's going to be hard. But that's why it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you and getting to talk about this. And I'm grateful for your uh, for for you asking me. Absolutely. Well, Bill, I mean, again, um, deep and sincere thanks for leading the way on so much of this and and modeling what it means to both live a life, to be a, a person of letters, of activism, and, and of teaching. And time and again through this conversation, you've you've often you've shone the light onto the the many, not just the one. And I think, as far as embodying what does what does collective leadership look like. Where, where really the leader's job is merely to signpost and, and, and to boost the signal of the many. Um, I think you've done a phenomenal and inspiring uh, embodied example of that. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you for to say, and thank you for your work. And on we go. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Abby Arda. The podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. 
always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, homeopathic supplement, and any other questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any health professional affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of our guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibilities for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests, qualifications, or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.